Welcome to the Modern Mexico Podcast. I'm your host, Nathaniel Parrish. On the last episode of the podcast, we spoke to Mexico historian Benjamin Smith about his new book on Mexico's current security problems and 100-year history of involvement in the war on drugs. On today's episode, we're speaking to Shannon O'Neill, a senior fellow for Latin America at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York and the author of a 2012 book called Two Nations Indivisible, Mexico, the United States, and the Road Ahead. Starting in the 1990s with the signing of the North American Free Trade Agreement in 1993, the U.S. has looked to embrace globalization and seek out new markets for exports. Fostering closer economic ties with Mexico has been a big part of the U.S.'s foray into the modern era of globalization, global markets, and global supply chains. In 1993, when signing the NAFTA deal, President Clinton thanked Mexico for joining the trade pact. I'd also like to welcome here the representatives from Mexico and Canada and tell them they are, in fact, welcome here. They are our partners in the future that we are trying to make together. The administration of President Joe Biden has also extended a hand to Mexico and sought to seek closer ties and increased economic cooperation with Mexico. In 2021, during Mexico's September celebration of Independence Day, President Biden sent a special message to Mexico. The United States has no closer friend than Mexico. From the earliest days of our nations, the people of Mexico and the United States have shared a strong bond, united by our shared values and our shared aspirations. And throughout our history, we've learned that we're stronger when we stand together as neighbors, partners, and friends. In order to talk about Mexico, the United States, and what the road ahead looks like, today we're speaking to the Council on Foreign Relations Mexico expert, Shannon O'Neill. Hi, Shannon. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. I know that in your book, you write that, quote, lost in the headlines, Mexico's real story today is one of fundamental political, economic and social transformation from authoritarianism to democracy, from a closed to an open economy and from a poor society to a middle class nation. And I'm wondering, when you look at Mexico today, what grade would you give Mexico's macroeconomic health right now? Well, those are really big ideas, and, and, and some of those things continue. But just to look at that macroeconomics to start with, you know, I would give them a C. Uh, they're not thriving, but they're not failing. Uh, and let me develop that a little bit. So, you know, as we look around the world today, as you look at emerging economies uh, coming out of the coronavirus pandemic and the like, you know, Mexico looks pretty decent, particularly on debt to GDP levels and other macroeconomic factors. So there, um, we've for 20, 25 years, we've seen pretty good macroeconomic uh, management in Mexico. Debt to GDP levels have, have for a long time been quite low. So that looks fairly good. 
We also see uh, Mexico's GDP levels rebounding. Uh, in large part, this is drawn by the United States as the U.S. recovers, Mexico too is recovering, and there's lots of benefits that are happening there, both in the industrial sector, the economy, as well as remittances that come from the U.S. back to Mexico. But that too has helped the macroeconomic numbers and overall outlook. On the downside, why it's not an A and it's a C, uh, is some of the directions that the government uh, and the economy are going. So one is there's huge debt levels in the state-owned enterprises in the energy sector, both Pemex and the CFE, the, the Federal Electricity Commission. Um, those are right now on an unsustainable direction and not moving in a way that will, will get any better. Uh, and so as we see those plans, those are going to be a huge drag on the Mexican budget, but then also the overall economy, as we're just not going to see energy production grow or expand in the ways that will be useful for a growing, growing demand that's happening in Mexico. And the last thing I would say is many of the moves of this administration, uh, which we can talk more about, but they are hindering domestic and foreign direct investment. So we have not seen over the last few years either public investment or private investment. And that is what sets up the structures for long-term faster growth. So as you look forward the next two, five, 10 years, we haven't seen the basic investments that would allow the economy to grow and expand. Okay, great. And um, I'd also like to, you know, zoom out a little bit and, you know, look at the last 30 years of Mexico's economic transformation. And I know uh, that if we just focused on exports, uh, there's really been huge increase in the level of exports that Mexico is sending out. Uh, it's really been pretty notable. Um, just to mention a couple of facts, I know that exports jumped from just 61 million in 1994 to 418 billion in 2020. Um, so that is a pretty huge increase. Um, so to put it differently, uh, every day in 2020, Mexico's exports tallied over $1 billion. And that's almost 20 times more than the nominal value of what the country exported during the whole year of 1994. So with that in mind, I'm wondering, do you think it's important for foreign observers not to lose sight of how much Mexico's economy has evolved over the past 30 years? It is important, and it's important for a few factors. One is just that, that huge increase in exports, but that also reflects big underlying structural changes in the economy. So if you go back to the 1980s, Mexico exported less, much less, as you've just laid out, um, but it was exporting different things. It was exporting basically oil, basically commodities. And you look today at that billion dollars a day that is crossing the borders and going out to the world, mostly to the United States, but also to other countries around the world. And a good portion of it is advanced manufacturing goods. It is cars and car parts, it's electronics and other kinds of appliances. It is airplanes or parts for aviation. It's all kinds of things, it's medical devices and the like. So you really see a diversification of the economy along with a, a vast increase in its export orientation. So that is a, fundament, a real fundamental change. 
The other changes you've seen over this last 30, 40 years is a growth in services. Uh, so it's not just physical goods that are crossing borders or, or fueling the economy in Mexico. It's also the service economy. So some of that is the basic stuff that, that you know, retail and restaurants and that sort of stuff. But some of it is also exports. And you've seen a big growth in you know, tens of thousands of engineers in Mexico and other kinds of services um, that are sort of higher value added services and, and then higher wages that have grown in Mexico. It's still incipient, but we have seen a real change in the economy over this last 30 or 40 years. That's, that's important to note. And that's also why it's important to me, at least, to see what Mexico could be and what could also be lost. And so some of this change, diversification of the economy, open orientation, uh, that isn't permanent necessarily, right? That depends on depends on individual business decisions and company decisions, but it also depends on policy direction. You need to provide an environment that allows those international condition, connections, uh, that allows this diversification to continue and to be sustained. Okay, and with that in mind, what grade would you give President Lopez Obrador on his stewardship of the Mexican economy during the first half of his six-year term in office? Well, here, putting on my professor hat, I'm, I'm uh, less impressed than with the overall macroeconomics. So here we're closer. It's not a C. It's closer to failing. And let me lay out why I think that, uh, why the grade is so bad. So in part, it is what has allowed Mexico to uh, has been this outward orientation and has been this diversification, this this growth and, and expansion of the private sector and many private sectors. And to me, the moves of this government, the policy choices of this government are limiting that today, but also into the future. Uh, so we see a, a pullback from, frankly, the role of the private sector. This is most visible in the energy sector, um, but it is across many different industries where you see the state stepping in more and more, whether it's agriculture, energy, and the like. And that I think is detrimental to seeing a real expansion of uh, activity, but also of jobs. Um, we see a lack of investment, of public investment, and where it is being invested in places that won't allow this diversification. So, you know, public investment today is at the, some of the lowest levels in decades in Mexico. So the state is just not building the infrastructure or investing in education or other aspects that um, then allows uh, the economy to grow. And when they are investing, they're investing in some big projects, things like the Tren Maya, so you know, a train over in, in Quintana Roo, or they're investing in refineries or airports, but things that actually aren't the kind of investment that manufacturing or, or other industries need. They're not investing in the roads and the rails and the ports and the higher education that, that these kinds of companies are searching for, or those that might come to Mexico would be searching for as they look to to put themselves uh, in, in various countries or look to place factories and the like. Uh, and then finally, you have seen over these last three years a politicization of the business environment. So, you know, one of the examples are these uh, consultos populares, which are, you know, votes that happen in local municipalities about whether or not factories can open or use water sources and the like. So changing a bit, making it politicized, the kind of rules of, of operations for, for companies. Uh, you have seen some politicization uh, trying to of the judiciary and of the way decisions are made vis-a-vis -vis businesses. 
Uh, and you've seen some politicization of the tax authority going after particular companies and the like in ways that many worry are not based on the fundamentals, but but really based on uh, political alliances and, and uh, leanings. And so all of that, um, we've seen a response over the last three years, which is that the private sector, whether the locals or international uh, companies, are investing much less because they don't see an environment where they're sure uh, what the return will be uh, down the road. So they're hesitant uh, to sink those costs in, um, and many are looking in other places around the world. Okay. And when it comes to economic management, I'm wondering if you think that is there a difference in the perception among foreign analysts and investment advisors about the quality of Mexico's macro management versus President Lopez Obrador's economic development policies and plans? So when you are an investor in bonds, in Pemex bonds or government bonds, what you really want to see is, are they going to pay these back? <laughs> and, and what kind of return are they going to give to you? And so as of today, given the macroeconomic factors, given that debt to GDP is at manageable levels, uh, given Mexico's connectedness in, in the world, given the Bank of Mexico's you know, long-term track record of stability and, and the like, uh, it's probably a pretty good bet to buy those bonds. They pay a good interest rate. They pay much more than U.S. Treasuries do or some other places around the world. Mexico's currency has been quite stable, and that is a focus of the Lopez Obrador administration to keep that stable. So your foreign exchange risk, if you're a you know, U.S.-based investor, um, you may think is pretty limited, uh, at least for right now. And so it's a good return because of those macroeconomics. The day-to-day -day economy, uh, companies that are investing or, or um, those that want to make products or sell services uh, or hire people, they're making different kinds of decisions, right? They're, yeah, they care about the foreign exchange rates and the like, but what they're really thinking about is, can I run a business? Can I run it profitably? Can I export or can I sell into the local market? Will I be able to do that with you know, st stable and steady rules? Will I know, will I have a lot of visibility into my supply chains, my suppliers or my buyers? And there, many of the decisions the government's making, this politicization or the lack of investment in infrastructure or in, in workforce education, like that's where there's different calculations happening there. So for the big, you know, financial investors that just want to buy sovereign bonds, that is a very different calculation than for people who are going to invest in the long term. And the challenge here is that if you don't get the people investing for the long term, whether, you know, local Mexican businesses or international businesses, then down the road, those macroeconomic figures don't look as good because you don't have the economic dynamism nor the tax intakes and things like that for, for government balances. Okay. And I know that uh, Mexico has been hit pretty hard by the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, there are some estimates that the real death toll is likely over half a million, which is pretty, pretty sad to see. Um, and I'm wondering... Overall, what grade would you give President Lopez Obrador for his response to the economic consequences of the COVID crisis? Sure. Well, the health consequences, as you just laid out, are incredibly tragic. And, and I think most who would watch how Mexico handled the health side of it, uh, it, it was not a, not a very good grade um, in terms of, of helping people uh, and rolling things out across the health system. But just looking at the economy, you know, this was one of the only countries around the world uh, that didn't step in, uh, that didn't really have a stimulus package and try to uh, 
uh, save businesses and, and save jobs. Mexico spent less than 1% of its GDP, not even close to that, uh, in terms of direct stimulus to the economy, uh, when most other countries, including other emerging economies, not just the big industrial economies, spent far, far more than that. Uh, so you have seen as a result uh, hundreds of thousands of small and medium-sized enterprises fail uh, and go bankrupt. You've seen many people pushed out of the formal economy. Uh, so, you know, formal jobs with companies that are, that are registered with the government and pay tax and like many uh, pushed out back into the informal sector. And this has been a big challenge for Mexico to get more workers into a formal economy. And now you've seen that go backwards. So more people just working uh, under the, off the books or, or on their own. Um, the one thing that really saved Mexico in many ways is that they benefited from the U.S. stimulus package. And this was you know, one of the biggest in U.S. history and really, frankly, all around the world. And Mexico, given its geographic proximity, given its economic ties, given the deep community ties and personal ties, really benefited from the U.S. spending, both because keeping open U.S. industrial companies and manufacturing meant that they bought supplies from Mexico, they bought parts or they, they worked with their counterparts in Mexico. And then the personal stimulus that you got in the United States, the checks that went out to all of Americans and their families, benefited Mexico because so many Mexican-Americans sent remittances back, or Mexicans and Mexican-Americans sent remittances back to Mexico to help their families that remained there. So uh, AMLO gets a you know failing grade to me on how he dealt with the economic side effects of the pandemic crisis, um, but the U.S. Uh, stimulus really helped lift Mexico and took a lot of that edge off. Mm-hmm. I know that we've seen, you know, record-breaking levels of remittances being sent from uh, the U.S. to Mexico in, in both 2020 and 2021. So that seems like one, uh, you know, one bright spot is that Mexico does have this relationship with its, um, you know, the community of Mexican-Americans and migrants in the U.S. Um, and I think the macroeconomy has benefited from that over the last two years. Um so speaking about the, you know, the U.S.-Mexico relationship, I wanted to ask you about uh, the relationship right now in terms of cooperation on economic issues between the Lopez Obrador and Biden administrations. And I know with Trump that one of the main talking points was his border wall, right? Uh, but I'm wondering with Biden, are we seeing more discussion of building literal bridges and border border crossings for cargo? Um, and are we seeing overall a bigger effort to foster closer economic ties? So here I see great possibilities, but also big obstacles. Um, if the U.S. passes these infrastructure bills and, you know, right now in, in beginning of October, there's still heated discussions happening in the Congress. But if those hard infrastructure, you know, the roads, the rails, the ports, the tens of billions of dollars or hundreds of billions of dollars that look to go in there, that will help those logistics. That will help tie. It'll do a lot for the United States in general, but it will also help tie the United States to Mexico. So you will see investment on those crossways and pathways that that tie the two countries together. So that is uh, positive. Uh, We also see one of the big signature issues of the Biden administration, which 
in many ways comes out of the U.S.-China rivalry, but also has lots of other factors behind it, is a rethinking of global supply chains and the U.S. place in them, and particularly in what they're calling critical industries, which involve you know, particular minerals, involves semiconductors, it involves electric vehicle batteries, it involves pharmaceutical products, but it also is being rolled out across all kinds of areas of the U.S. economy. And there the idea is to bring more things home, but also bring things closer. And so that too should benefit Mexico as a neighbor, as a place where you already have regional supply chains. There is an incredible opportunity in the next two to five years uh, for more of that to come to uh, North America and North America broadly. Um, so there's this big opportunity, but that said, um, there are real obstacles uh, that the Biden administration is just starting to work through and that I think will make it harder for Mexico to benefit from, from these opening that uh, is potentially happening. And I would put two on the table. One is the immediate uh, disagreements and and challenges under the USMCA, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Free Trade Agreement, or TEMEC as they like to call it in Mexico, Um, and that involves uh, the energy sector in particular, Uh, and so U.S. companies and other companies there who feel that their rights and investments uh, are not being treated fairly under the law, given the changes uh, that the López Obrador administration is trying to make in the management of industry, Um, that has to do with both sort of traditional fossil fuel suppliers, companies like Talos, which is a U.S.-based company who feels that their uh, investments and in, in exploration and production have been uh, taken by the state of oil company. It also uh, involves the renewable companies that have gone down there and the way they've changed the rules in terms of, of uh, renewables feeding into the electricity grid and the like. Um, so that is an immediate challenge are those cases. And there are some cases also in the agricultural sector and the pharma sector and others where U.S. businesses feel they're not being treated fairly under the rules that were laid out by USMCA. Um, so that's one immediate issue. The broader issue is the United States, as well as many countries around the globe, are really accelerating their green transition. And so we're headed in November into the COP26 and countries all around the world have made pledges uh, to reduce their carbon emissions, to go carbon neutral by particular dates. Companies too, most of the Fortune 500 companies have made commitments on how they're gonna be carbon neutral, how they're gonna change their carbon footprint around the world. And so a big challenge in U.S.-Mexico relations, but for Mexico and other relations with countries and companies, is that it is moving in the exact opposite direction. It is moving into a dirtier energy matrix. It is doubling down on fossil fuels and refineries of of old-style energy sources and moving away from renewables. And so there may get to be a point in U.S.-Mexico relations where the U.S. will start thinking about introducing a carbon border tax that will tax goods coming in from Mexico because of the climate pledges it has made and because of the way it's running its economy and trying to move towards this greener economy, it will have to make those decisions. Uh, And companies, uh, whether U.S. companies or, or European companies or others, may also have that challenge in Mexico's economy where they feel they can no longer manufacture there or produce there and meet their climate change commitments that they're making or have made already to their shareholders uh, or in multilateral forums. So I think that is a huge pending challenge on the U.S.-Mexico relationship, uh, but more broadly for Mexico as they look uh, to the part of their economy um, that is global. Okay, great. So with all of that in mind, uh, I'm wondering 
what are the three biggest obstacles you think that policymakers in Mexico need to address to improve the country's economic outlook? So there's some straightforward ones, right? I do think uh, sort of providing steady and fair rules for investment, for doing business, um, that really matters. And we've seen uh, some backtracking on that. Another one that we haven't talked about, but that is vitally important for for businesses and the economy, whether you're big businesses and international companies or you're just a local taco stand and the like, is security. Uh, and that has been deteriorating, but particularly has deteriorated over the last three years. And I don't see uh, a sustainable or even really a security strategy coming out of the Lopez Obrador administration today that would change uh, those numbers on the ground. Uh, but stepping back, and this goes a little bit to what I was saying about the green transition, but there are big global shifts happening today um, that will affect Mexico's economy down the road. And I don't think this government is preparing for those. So one of them obviously is the green transition. They're not moving their economy to make it an attractive place uh, for those that wanna be carbon neutral down, down the road. You know, another that we've touched upon here is the supply chain transition. Uh, we are seeing for various reasons, uh, for climate change reasons, for domestic equity reasons, for human rights reasons, for U.S.-China rivalry reasons, for whole sorts of reasons, we are seeing global supply chains move around uh, and a lot of uh, flexibility uh, and rethinking today and over the next, I say, two to five years. I think we will see a lot of companies moving. It started before the pandemic, frankly, um, but it is really accelerating with government uh, actions, both the US, but also Europe and others. Um, and so Mexico to me is not taking advantage of the fact that so many companies are in play, so many factories are in play that they should be trying to attract to their shores today. So that is something that I think they're missing out on. And then finally, I would just put on the table an obstacle is we are seeing before the pandemic, but particularly accelerated by the pandemic, a real changing of the role of technology in everyday businesses. So we are seeing automation and, and robotization. We're seeing artificial intelligence and algorithms enter all kinds of businesses. Uh, and that will mean a real change in the workforce, um, but it will also mean a real change in the way business is done. And I don't see Mexico recognizing those changes, much less preparing its population and its future workforces for those shifts. So what are the obstacles? Well, security is an obstacle, just the business rules are in business environment is an obstacle. But I think this bigger, longer term obstacle is the world is changing and Mexico is not addressing, maybe even not even recognizing that the economies of 10 years from now, much less 20 years from now, are going to be very different than the ones today. Okay, great. And, uh, you know, so we've talked a little bit about, you know, some of the, the red flags that we're looking at and, you know, some of the obstacles to growth in the future. But I'm wondering in terms of optimism, you know, what are the three sectors of Mexico's economy that you are most optimistic about for medium term growth over the next few years? So I think my most optimistic side for Mexico is the part of the economy and the part of the country that is tied to the United States. And I say that not as a U.S. citizen and, and the like, but I watch it over the last 30 years where we've seen growth, where we've seen productivity, where we've seen increasing number of jobs and also increasing salaries and the like. And a lot of that is the part of the economy that's tied to 
to the global the global economy. Uh, and I don't think that's going to change. I think that is a huge place for uh, growth uh, and and prosperity, frankly, for Mexico. So, you know, I laid out kind of my pessimism that Mexico will take advantage of these supply chain shifts. But on the other side, this is a huge once in a generation opportunity for Mexico because of all these other reasons, these geopolitical reasons and the and, and also, you know, the, the lessons of the pandemic and the like, uh, Mexico has an incredible opportunity to step in and, and capture so much of that economic activity that is now uh, flexible or footloose around the world. So whether that's, you know, advanced manufacturing, uh, like, the, you know, already they have a big vehicle production and auto parts. Um, the cars of the future, you see your Ford and others are talking about by 2035, which is not that far away, moving to electric vehicles. Mexico could be a huge player in electric vehicles if it... Uh, made it attractive for those new kinds of industries and technology to come there. So I think there's a huge opportunity in that transportation sector for Mexico to grow and thrive if they can attract the capital and technology and companies. Uh, Likewise, I think there's a huge opportunity for Mexico in the medical sphere. Um, They already are producers of all kinds of medical devices. There's clusters along the U.S. border, particularly in Tijuana, but in other places as well. Um, That, too, is something the U.S. wants to bring closer to home, to have pharmaceuticals and medical equipment somewhere within, you know, within the U.S., but also within the hemisphere. Mexico is incredibly well positioned um, to do that. So I think that, too, is is an area where you can see growth. Um, And then, you know, if you start seeing investment, if you start seeing a diversification economy and more of this high technology come to Mexico and and a bigger place for Mexico there, then I think you can see a boom in consumption in Mexico as well. And so that can help a whole host of industries um, that cater to domestic uh, constituencies and domestic, you know, domestic consumers. Uh, But all of that really depends on taking advantage of this moment, uh, which I, at least so far, don't see Mexico doing. Mm-hmm. So it seems like there's a real contrast there between President Lopez Obrador's focus on oil and building refineries and the private sector's focus on transitioning to electric vehicles. Um, and with that in mind, I'm wondering, what's the sector of Mexico's economy that you are most worried about right now? One of the biggest worries is the energy sector. Um, and worried for a number of reasons. One, I'm worried that Mexico will just have enough energy, uh, given the current plans and and focusing almost all of the investment within the state-owned companies and the government itself. I'm worried that Mexico just won't have enough energy and capacity for the demand, just the continuing demand that they have there and demand for the future, but especially demand for this potential expansion of the economy and and factories that might come and relocate in this supply chain shuffle that's happening around the world. So, and if you don't have enough energy, you don't have enough electricity to turn the lights on and keep the factories humming, um, then that will affect all sectors of the economy. And it, and it will affect people. It'll affect it, you know, you go home and you won't be able to turn on your lights or you'll have brownouts as well as blackouts. And we're already starting to see this in different parts of the economy. So I'm really worried about the energy sector uh, of Mexico uh, and what it means for, for that sector, but also for the broader economy within Mexico, because that is just one of the fundamental pillars. And the other side is even if you have capacity, even if you have the lights to stay on, 
I'm worried about the nature of, of that basis. And again, we've, we've mentioned this, but if it is a dirty energy matrix, if it is one that is polluting the environment, it's going to be very hard for international companies to come and operate in Mexico and then others who are going to sell abroad. And so I think that will have a huge tax on the health of Mexicans, on those who breathe the air in, in these cities and the like. Um, but it will also have a huge tax on, on the larger economy and particularly the export oriented economy, um, where it may just not be viable to make things in Mexico. And that too will be really detrimental and have all of these knock-on effects, repercussions for, for the domestic economy. Okay. And I know in your book, you address a, a concept that you call Mexico's dilemma. And you ask, quote, can, can it realize its potential and become a hub of North American competitiveness and interconnectedness? Or will it succumb to inept government and escalating violence walled off rather than embraced by its neighbor next door, unquote. So I'm wondering, um, you know, has your, has your outlook on Mexico changed since you published your book? Are you feeling, you know, less optimistic now than you were when you were writing your book? And if you had to add a chapter on the Lopez Obrador era in Mexico, uh, what would you add to that chapter? Sure. Well, I think that still is the fundamental dilemma, uh, but I am less optimistic about which direction Mexico is going. And I think for two reasons. You know, one is the, the challenges uh, that Mexico faces, the security challenges, the economic challenges, the social challenges have just gotten worse, not better since that time. Uh, and as we've discussed here, you know, I don't think the Lopez Obrador government policies are moving it in that right direction to attract capital, to get investment, to diversify the economy, um, and to provide more opportunities for, for Mexicans. So that worries me. Um, and then also since, since that writing, you know, five, almost 10 years ago, uh, I think the global transformations uh, have accelerated. So the green transition has accelerated in ways that you know we didn't think about back in in 2015. Um, this you know so moving around of supply chains and changing of sort of the global trade dynamics that too is something that's really new in the last three to four years. And you know one big shift since I wrote the book is the rise or return of industrial policy around the world and not just emerging economies who often dabble in this to protect infant industries or particular industries, um, but we've seen it embraced by the you know, advanced industrial economies. So the United States is, is a classic example here that's really engaging in industrial policy. Europe too is doing that in their, what they call fit for 55 policy, which is a comprehensive policy to restructure their economies to meet climate change goals. And so that is a change that the world wasn't talking about in, in you know, 2013, 2014, um, but really matters for middle-sized, middle-power countries like Mexico and how they're going to fit in. And as I see this current administration, they're not addressing those issues. And so that too leads me to the pessimistic side of that dilemma. I still think the optimistic side is available there. and. The nature of the global economy today allows Mexico to grasp on and, and reach that more positive, more prosperous future. But I don't see the actions happening in Mexico today that would take them down that path. Mm -hmm. Okay. And 
I know in your book uh, you mentioned the success of Mexican billionaire Ricardo Salinas and his Electra and Banco Azteca businesses. And I'm wondering, right now when we're looking at Mexico, how should we view these companies in terms of, Mexico, of, of Mexico's economic health? Um, is it a positive sign that private sector companies are evolving and growing and you know establishing themselves as global you know global forces or is it a sign that monopolies in Mexico have too much power and are unfortunately able to take advantage of low income customers and overcharge them given their monopoly power you know that uh, that business is is a classic example of the dilemma on the one side you see over the last, the reason you've seen the expansion of, of companies like Electra is that you see more purchasing power and buying power of Mexicans over the last 20 or 30 years um, that can go buy washing machines and blenders and, and all kinds of electronics. So that is in some ways a success that you see people able to have a more of a middle-class lifestyle and the like. Um, the dilemma or the flip side is that as you say, it's a monopoly or an oligarchy. Uh, and some of the, you know, some of the ways that they treat customers, some of the ways that they corner the market and don't let competition in, um, is something that holds Mexico back. And it's not just on the retail side; it's on um, the input side. So, you know, from glass and cement and all kinds of, of basic inputs, you see just a couple of companies, or you sometimes even one company that really dominates markets and controls prices, and makes it harder for a more diverse economy. So that has been the challenge. I will say what's been interesting as you look over the last 20 plus years is, yes, those monopolies continue or those oligopolies continue in many sectors, uh, but you have started to see some chipping away in some areas. And so some of that has happened uh, with international competition coming in or with different suppliers and different kinds of supply chains that are outside of those traditional domestic focused industries where they can capture markets. Others have happened when we've actually seen some progress and, you know, this sometimes this is two steps forward, one step back. But we have seen, for instance, over the last 10 years, uh, a pretty active antitrust commission, uh, an independent antitrust commission in Mexico that has gone after collusion in the banking sector, uh, in the pharmaceutical distribution sector, uh, in gas and gas distribution sector, in a whole host of areas um, that I think on the whole have actually opened up Mexico's economy. And so that has been, you know, in some ways positive that you have some government regulation that's beginning to free up some of those areas. Now, I think there's a question about whether that continues. Um, we're going to see new leadership, for instance, in that antitrust commission and who that is and if they're as independent and, and aggressive in trying to open Mexico's economy in those ways against these you know, deep-seated oligopolies and monopolies. But um, we've started to see a, a bit of opening, but that is that is definitely something that holds Mexico's economy back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I often think that that's one of like the biggest paradoxes about modern Mexico. Um, and it's this idea that, you know, the World Bank gives Mexico very high marks within Latin America for um, the environment uh, in, in which businesses operate, you know, in the Doing Business Index. So in theory, it's a great country in Latin America to start a business and to operate a business. But there are still some caveats there that uh, it's one of the countries that scores worst in terms of corruption, in terms of institutional capacity, and in terms of monopoly control. So 
on some level, it seems like it's still a, a great place to run a monopoly and it still can be challenging, you know, to start, start a business and, and run a business in, in another sector of the economy. And I know that, uh, you know, we mentioned Ricardo Salinas and uh, Electra, but really we can talk about, you know, Carlos Slim in the telecom sector, you know, dominates both fixed line and uh, cellular phone markets. And for movie theaters, there's been tremendous growth in, in movie theaters in Mexico, and it's dominated by just two companies. Um, you know, with Cement, we have just one company, Cemex, that dominates the market. During the pandemic, they figured out, hospitals have figured out that there are two companies that dominate the entire market for, uh, for oxygen. Um, and maybe the worst offender could be the beer sector, where two companies control around 98% of the entire market. Um, so I think that, you know, when we think about Mexico, we, we have to look at like, yeah, there, there's a lot of successful companies, but a lot of these companies are benefiting from their monopoly, monopoly positions that they have, um, in the sectors in which they operate. Um, and so with that in mind, uh, I know that a couple of years ago, McKinsey published a report on the two Mexicos, and they described uh, a globally connected, highly productive Mexico in the north and a disconnected and unproductive Mexico in the south. And I'd like to just mention a couple of facts here. Um, you know, when we look at the numbers on formal sector employment, we see that the North really does have more former formal sector employment than the South. Um, we know that overall, more than half of Mexico's workers are employed in informal sector jobs. And in the South, in, in Chiapas, only one in four workers is employed in a formal sector job. And by contrast, in the North, uh, in Baja California, and in other industrialized northern states, over 60% of workers are employed in formal sector jobs. So we definitely see a, a, a north-south divide when it comes to formal sector employment. Um, so just to sum up, in Chiapas, the vast majority of all workers are employed in informal sector jobs. And in Baja California, more than 6 in 10 have a formal sector job. So I'm wondering... You know, a few years have passed since this report was published, but I'm, I'm just wondering how helpful do you think that this two Mexico framework is for understanding uh, Mexico's economy right now? You know, I think, unfortunately, it still is um, quite perceptive and, and on point. Um, and so it's, I mean, formal sector jobs, we definitely see it there. You know, we see it in education sectors. If you live in the north, you're much more likely to have more years of education or access to education than if you live in the south. Um, human development indicators, things like your overall health and the length, how long you're going to live and, and all sorts of, you know, uh, things like that, those two are better in the north than they are in the south. So you're seeing this divide. And I would say um, coming out of COVID, uh, fingers crossed that we're coming out of COVID, but that this divergence is just accelerating, uh, in part because the rebound that Mexico is experiencing, much of it is driven by the United States and the states in the north are much more tied to the United States. So as you think about 
know, these supply chains and the activity along, you know, that are tied to the U.S. economy and to U.S. buyers and, and suppliers, that is mostly located in the north. Um, as you think about uh, the remittances that are coming back, yes, some go back to uh, places in the south of Mexico. That's definitely true. But, but those two seem to be, uh, you know, a bit more leaning towards the north. So a lot of this economic activity and the inflows of capital and the like that are coming or jobs and, and activity are, he are headed towards the north rather than the south. The other challenge there, I would say, is that many of the local Salvador policies, some of the policies, for instance, including um, the energy sector and the like, um, those are those are hitting uh, the south as well. And so, yes, there's some investments down there that are happening, but um, they aren't the product the productive investments that are happening in the north. So as you think about the longer term there, you are, I do think this north-south divide um, is stable um, and will continue. And so one, it's about investment, but two, it's also about, and the McKinsey report talks about productivity. And, you know, economists like to talk about productivity because that is how you get to, you know, what they would say a different equilibrium. That's how you get um, to where you can produce more with fewer amounts of capital or fewer workers so you can raise wages or you can have bigger profits. And, you know, how you divide wages and profits is a big story. And that's a different kind of um, discussion, which Mexico doesn't always come uh, down in an equal way. Um, but overall, if you can increase productivity, there's more to work with there and to share with workers potentially, uh, as well as increasing profits. And productivity, as you look at productivity numbers in Mexico, in the North, <clears throat> they have been increasing a couple percentages every year, which is which is not bad. You've seen sort of increases in how much output per worker, um, how much you know capital, how much output per, per unit of capital or sort of dollar put into the business. In the South, these have been decreasing over the last 10 to 20 years. And that is really worrisome because it means it's hard to see optimism for how industry or jobs and employment can thrive in the South if you're not seeing those increases over time. So that reality, I think, is still very real. The pandemic has just accelerated it. Uh, and those divergences have real economic consequences, but they're also going to have political consequences, as you see the real difference between the have and have nots based not just on, on families or areas, but also geographic areas. Mm -hmm. And I know that in my book, I, I open with a chapter on a family making a coffee business in, in rural Chiapas. And I close with a chapter on the border economy in Tijuana. And it just stands out to me, you know, the, the incredible visual differences between uh, rural Chiapas and Tijuana, right? Like um, one of the things I remember most is just the up in the mountains in Chiapas, this feeling of isolation and just seeing, you know, green mountain range after mountain range after mountain range disappearing into the distance and, you know, not seeing a lot of buildings. It's just green everywhere. And the roads are, you know, pretty low quality and it takes a long time to navigate between different towns. Um, versus in Tijuana, the landscape is dominated by highways and border crossings, obviously a border wall as well. Um, and one of the things that you see most there is just trucks everywhere, trucks carrying goods, trucks moving goods from Tijuana over the border into the into the U.S. Um, and even just thinking about the the way that I saw people working, you know, in Chiapas, I watched um, indigenous coffee growers hand picking coffee cherries and then processing everything at home, 
hand sorting the beans, packaging them, getting getting them ready for sale, getting them ready for export. Um, and in the north, you have these incredibly modern factories where people are are making, you know, very complicated um, electronic equipment, medical equipment, um, and automotive automotive parts. Um, so I definitely saw, you know, just visually a big difference um, between the the north and the south in my book. But over the course of working on the research, I, I delved into some of the numbers on income, and I was honestly really surprised to see that um, a lot of the data on both on income level and on inequality in Chiapas and Baja California are actually pretty pretty similar. Um, so I'd like to just mention a couple of, of facts. Um, this week I, I looked at the latest data on income level in, in both states, uh, the data for September. And um, we can look at how many people in Chiapas and Baja California earn over $12,500 a year, which is a salary that in Mexico we might consider to be, you know, middle class, middle class or, you know, solidly, solidly middle class, right? And in terms of the, the just the number of people that are earning over $12,500 a year in Chiapas, it's 22,000. And in Baja California, it's just 13 and a half thousand workers who are earning more than $12,500 per year. And on the other hand, we can look at how many people in each state are earning less than $5,000 a year. And in Chiapas, it's 2.2 million workers. And in Baja California, it's 1.3 million workers who are earning less than $5,000 a year. So just to put those numbers differently, uh, in both states, for every worker that earns over $12,500 a year, there are 100 workers who earn less than $5,000. And overall, the number of workers earning more than $12,500 a year accounts for around 1% of the total workforce in both Baja California and Chiapas. So I'm wondering, you know, what can we say about this? Like if, if we do see that the North has more technology, the factories are better, um, it's a much more modern and globally connected economy, but it doesn't seem like the salaries are, you know, really competitive with the United States or Germany or Japan. So does this in any way diminish the value of this two Mexico framework for understanding Mexico? Sure. I mean, these are these are really important questions. And, you know, Baja's a little bit on the side of the industrial heartland. So I think if you looked at those numbers in Nuevo León or Guanajuato or some of those places, it would be, um, they'd be a little different. But that said, they wouldn't be all that different. And, you know, as you look at Mexico, this is taking it back and, and looking in a broader perspective. So in the 1980s, uh, the per capita income in Mexico was about $2,500. So that was the average income earned across uh, the, the country. Um, and that would be, you know, as you look at the World Bank rankings, that would be a lower income country or lower middle income, lower middle income country is what the, you know, the World Bank would say. Uh, today or before the pandemic, let's say, um, the per capita income uh, in Mexico is $10,000 per person. 
Um, now, for the World Bank, you know they have upper middle in, upper middle income uh, is between four and twelve thousand, twelve thousand five. Uh, for for countries uh, and only above twelve thousand five is it considered a high income country in in the World Bank standards. So on the glass half full side, if you look from the eighties to today, Mexico has increased its per capita income fourfold, and there are people earning twelve thousand twelve thousand five hundred. Uh, dollars, one uh, percent of the population, as you lay out, but there still are people earning. And back in the 1980s, nobody was earning that really, uh, except for you know obviously the very few uh, elites, but no factory workers because there were no there were very few factories and the like. Um, but it also shows how far Mexico has to go. It is by the World Bank classifications considered an upper middle income country. Uh, but in all the things that we've been talking about, it's hard to see how it gets to that upper income country. How do you get to the point where the average wage or a good percentage, maybe half of your population, is earning above $12,500? And that, I think, is a very difficult path. Um, but it is not a path that it's going to solve uh, by doubling down on uh, as the you know, current government is looking on self-sufficiency, on turning inward, on um, relying on state-owned enterprises and the like, because that is not how you get to increase productivity, um, which would allow wages to rise. Um, so that's one side. On the other side, you know, I think the real challenge for Mexico is this monopoly uh, sectors and the oligarchies. And so that's both monopolies in businesses. Um, we talked a lot about those, those various sectors and, you know, across the across the economy that's there. Uh, and it's also, you know, monopolies in some of the labor unions and some of the way that labor is organized in Mexico that keeps those wages low. So um, I think there's a lot of push and pull factors. The last one I would mention here is it exists today, but also as you think about the future, this is going to just be uh, an increasing challenge for Mexico is that productivity of Mexican workers is much less than the productivity of U.S. or German workers that you mentioned. So their ability to produce their output for you know each shift is a lot less than those other um, workers that they're you know uh, relating to or or perhaps competing with. So you can pay higher wages in Mexico, in the United States, or in Germany because workers can produce a lot more. Partly that is the capital that's put in. So you know U.S. workers are working with um, different kinds of equipment. They're working. You know, more more things are automated or using uh, algorithms and the likes. So they can just get a lot more done per hour they're working. Um, but if Mexico wants to increase those wages, they're going to have to have that kind of worker as well. Their factories are going to have to evolve to look like and, and function uh, more in the ways that U.S. And, and German factories are functioning. And that will depend on uh, a lot of investment in education, in training, and that sort of thing so they can be as productive, that they can sort of change the way the whole workforce is is designed. Uh, and frankly, that is the direction that the world is going to go. It's going to become cheaper and cheaper to introduce technologies and software into the day-to-day operations of a whole host of businesses. Uh, so Mexican workers will need to be conversant uh, and literate and, and, and facile in using those kinds of technologies. So I think as as you think about how do you get Mexico into that high-income country, it's going to depend on education. 
It's going to depend on infrastructure and logistics and the investments. You know, it's very hard to get those coffees. That's a great chapter that you open your book with, but it's very hard to get those amazing organic coffee beans uh, to, you know, to the baristas in Seattle or New York or anywhere else because of the lack of roads and the like. And that adds a huge cost that takes away from what those people might earn. So they could earn more per per batch of coffee. Um, so, So I think there's a lot of things that pointing out those numbers is incredibly important because it shows how far Mexico needs to come and how much inequality there is there. Uh, But the solutions to me are doubling down and investing in ways that would allow you greater market access, would take out some of the costs in getting to to the world and and allowing Mexicans uh, or enabling Mexicans, workers, um, to keep more of the money that's coming out of there and be more productive so that they can earn higher wages. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I know that um, there's a, a couple of, of facts that have always really stood out to me. And, and one is, um, I believe it's from an Oxfam report. And it's this idea that in the two decades after NAFTA was signed, uh, Mexico's economy grew on average at just 0.6% a year. And the minimum wage stagnated for those two decades. And on the other hand, uh, Mexico's 16 wealthiest families saw their fortunes increase fivefold during that same time. And um, in the last chapter of my book, I, I talk about you know where these. I, I would just workers... add. I would just add on that. That's definitely true in Mexico, but that's also true in the United States. That is a global phenomenon that was happening in those years as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that's uh, that's one of the, the the other interesting things I always think about is. Uh, sometimes we think about you know Mexico developing or becoming a middle class economy, but on the other hand, the United States has started to look more like Mexico in terms of income inequality over the last two decades. So there there are definitely some similar trends in both countries. Um, but um, you know overall inequality levels are quite similar in 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 Mexico and in the U.S. But I think that the level of absolute poverty in Mexico is is still somewhat hard to fathom for most people. And when I was in Tijuana, it was really shocking to me to see that um, there's these sprawling slums that, um, you know, that people have built out of improvised materials, the detritus of the, the factories, you know, scraps of wood, tires, pieces of metal. And people are really living in shacks and, um, you know, up in the mountains, you know, an hour outside of the city and just these densely packed neighborhoods that are improvised. And I talked to people from Chiapas and Oaxaca who moved to Tijuana 20 years ago. And over those 20 years, some of them have, you know, turned their home into, you know, a, a cement home with a cement floor. And uh, overall, the quality of the housing um, might be similar to some of the housing in Chiapas and Oaxaca, but a lot of it is actually, you know, quite a bit worse and shockingly worse, you know, like really, uh, literally shacks made out of scraps of wood. Um, and I have a way of, of summarizing this. And I know that something that both President Biden and AMLO are excited about is the start of the major league Uh, baseball playoffs in the U.S. We're getting ready to see the start of uh, the playoffs in baseball. So when I looked at the the numbers on income levels in in Chiapas and Baja California, um, 
I know that the the number of formal sector workers who are making more than $12,500 a year in either Baja California or Chiapas would fill up between one third and one half of the seats in Boston, in Boston's Fenway Park. Okay. And by contrast, on the other hand, the number of people in each state who are earning less than $5,000 a year is around two to three times the population of all of Boston. So we can imagine, you know, just a few people, uh, you know, filling up a third of the seats in, in Fenway Park versus a city, the population of a city that's two or three times the size of all of Boston. Um, so that's kind of a little visual way to sum up what this income inequality looks like. You know, let um, me let me just say in that comparison because I think it's really interesting. What's also interesting is the very different reaction to those challenges you're seeing between the Lopez Obrador and the Biden administration. So you know, you have inequality, you have a lack of public resources, right? The problems in Tijuana or Ciudad Juarez is, you know, you don't have sewage, you don't have paved roads, you don't have, you know, uh, local municipal or state services that actually build out the city in urban planning ways. I mean, a lot of these challenges you're talking about come from the lack of state capacity and involvement in resources. And what's interesting to me right now in between the two countries is, you know, AMLO um, has gone on this austerity uh, kick and so is cutting back government services is pulling back from a lot of the things um, that one would expect the state to provide pulling back from building infrastructure pulling back from providing you know broader educational opportunities pulling back from you know helping women or children or other sorts of programs that you know used to be there in the Mexican states so you've seen a real shrinking of the resources for people who who need them. Uh, on the other side, you know, the Biden administration, um, we'll see if they pass a lot of this, but they are looking to reassert the state role. And so to deal with inequality um, by providing a state that has much more, you know, invest in hard infrastructure and in roads and rails and broadband internet and the like, but also is investing in soft infrastructure that's providing support for those who care for the young and the old, um, that improves educational opportunities, preschool, all these kinds of things. You're going to see, you know, a few, we'll see how much it ends up being, but at least a couple trillion dollars poured into trying to make the basic economy more equal um, for those that haven't benefited, as we've, we've talked about this increase in inequality in both places. So I think that difference is really uh, fascinating at, at this moment between the two countries and the way they're dealing with, you know, somewhat similar um, challenges, at least in terms of inequality. Yeah, definitely. And um, I know that, you know, I talked to a lot of uh, business executives and business analysts in places like Tijuana, Monterrey, Guadalajara, Ciudad Juarez, and I see them, you know, really working hard to think about the next 20 years and figure out how to stay competitive and how to embrace more advanced forms of manufacturing. And I also think that there's this perception that Lopez Obrador isn't paying very much attention to the manufacturing sector. Um, I know there's there's one example that people talk about that in 2019, he snubbed a visit to a BMW factory and instead visited a rustic donkey powered sugarcane press. And um, so a lot of people might be optimistic about 
Mexico's future, thinking about you know where Mexico's manufacturing sector could be in 30 years or 50 years, but they definitely have um, a lot of questions about Lopez Obrador. And I know in your book, you kind of say that Mexico is at this tipping point where it could go down a path towards becoming more like Spain, or it could regress and become more like Afghanistan. And we're now nearly 10 years after your book was published. And I'm just wondering, you know, where does Mexico stand today? Is it on the way to becoming more like Spain? Or do you think it's at risk of collapsing and even becoming a failed state? You know, unfortunately, I think it's backtracking right now. And, and you know, that uh, the choice to visit the donkey-powered, uh, you know, sugarcane factory over the BMW factory tells you a lot about the inclinations of the president, uh, much more inward-looking, much more small-bore you know, decisions, uh, more self-sufficiency than, than prosperity-driven. Uh, and, and I think that is infusing a lot of this. Um, there's no investment in the kinds of infrastructure um, that would entice uh, you know, uh, world-class companies or, or help domestic companies become world-class companies in the way that would allow them com- to compete. And you know, the real challenge, as I mentioned before, is now is the moment. We are seeing the global economy shift around some flexibility in in where things are are going lots of industries lots of companies are rethinking in their boardrooms how they're going to make their things where they're going to make their things Um, and that is happening right now that's happening over the next two to five years in, in many places and so if you don't take advantage of it now um, then those companies have made their decisions. Uh, they've sunk down their costs in either physical factories or relationships with local producers. And as it's looking today, that's more likely going to be in Vietnam and Malaysia and Indonesia and Thailand and the Philippines and India. Then it's going to be in Mexico. And I think that is a real challenge. So which direction are they going? I think, unfortunately, they're backsliding, um, on, particularly on the economic side. And then I just want to say one word about the security side. And this to me is incredibly worrisome. I've been watching Mexico for a few decades now. And I remember back in the, you know, 2007, eight, nine, uh, there were lots of worries in the United States about Mexico being a failed state. And there was talk about all of this. Uh, and, you know, that in many ways led to some of the cooperation between the United States and Mexico on security, what was under the umbrella of the Merida initiative and the like. Um, but you look today and you look at the penetration of organized crime. You look at the, the uh, spread and expansion of extortion. Uh, and in just the last you know, week or two, we've seen lots of firebombs going off in Acapulco and Guanajuato and other places, or in Guadalajara and places like that. And that too is you know, reflecting the extortion and the expansion of, the, of these levels. And that really worries me because you know, we can talk about the monopolies and oligopies, and those are incredibly important. Uh, as you think about the economies, but if you have this level of corruption, if you have extortion, if you have attacks on businesses from the local street vendor all the way up to the you know, BMW plant, um, that will be a huge drag on the Mexican economy, much less you know everyday Mexicans' lives and, and the challenges there. So uh, I haven't given up on Mexico. I am optimistic that there's so much potential there in, in many different areas, but I am worried uh, about where it is today. And in this dilemma of which direction it goes, is it Spain or Afghanistan? I worry that it's not moving uh, towards uh, towards Spain. Mm-hmm. Okay. So 
maybe just to, to kind of sum up our discussion here, if you had to pick just three words to sum up Lopez Obrador's economic management strategy, what, what words would you pick? That's a tough one, but um, I would say it is anachronistic, based in the 20th century, not the 21st. It is clientelistic, and in the end, it is impoverishing for the Mexican people. Okay, so <laughs> those are not <laughs> not very optimistic words, um, but we'll have to you know, we'll have to just I, keep watching. Next time, I hope to be more optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I'd like to take a short break to remind listeners that the Modern Mexico podcast is sponsored by the El Deposito chain of craft beer stores. Visitors and residents in Mexico City and Guadalajara can stop by one of El Deposito's locations and try a wide selection of independently owned beers, including Minerva, Loba, and Calavera. Overall, Craft beer still only accounts for less than 1% of Mexico's beer market, but many of the brands at El Deposito are expanding production and carving out a niche for themselves within Mexico. So, for craft beer aficionados, the best place to sample Mexico's celebrated cervezas artesanales is El Deposito. So... Uh, I'd like to just close out with a couple of quick, fun questions. And I'm just wondering, I know you've spent a lot of time in, in Mexico over the past few decades, and I'm wondering if, if there's any cantina that stands out to you as your as your favorite cantina. Oh, there's one that I used to visit with a bunch of friends, but I, I don't think I ever knew its name, but it's right in, in Condesa. <laughs> okay, great. And um, what about your favorite Mexican food or dish? Uh, enchiladas verdes. Okay, and what about your favorite Mexican beer? Uh, Bohemia. Okay, <laughs> and lastly, what about your favorite sight or sound in Mexico City? Mm, you know, my favorite sight or experience was at night when you walk the streets of downtown and all those colonial buildings and the lights are on and it's sort of uh, soft light. That's my favorite sight. Uh, and my favorite sound was when I lived there, there was a woman who would come by every day about 5 p.m. Uh, and sell her uh, Oaxacan tamales. So she'd stand outside and go tamale, tamale, tamale. And I just remember that being uh, part of my Mexican afternoons. Great. Well, I know that, you know, Mexico City has so much to offer. And I feel like everybody who comes to visit here or live here will will come away with, you know, a different you know, favorite sight or sound that really stands out to them. But, um, well, Shannon, I want to just say again, number one, how much I enjoyed rereading your, your book over the past few days. Uh, it's been, you know, very interesting to kind of revisit it almost a decade after it was published. And again, I want to just uh, thank you for joining us. It was a real pleasure to speak to you. Nate, it was great to join you and great to talk through all these big issues facing Mexico and hope we get to do it again. I'd just like to take a minute to remind listeners that the Modern Mexico podcast is sponsored by the Distrito Fijo Cycling Club in Mexico City. 
It's really important for tourists to understand the local dynamics in the places in Mexico they want to visit. And one of the best ways to explore Mexico is on two wheels. So to meet local cyclists, to have an espresso or a meal, or to join in on an early morning group ride, stop by Distrito Fijo's clubhouse and cycling store in the trendy Colonia Juarez neighborhood in Mexico City. Distrito Fijo can also help residents and visitors organize multi-day road and gravel cycling vacations in Oaxaca, Chiapas, Jalisco, and other states in Mexico. Shannon O'Neill's book, Two Nations Indivisible, Mexico, the United States, and the Road Ahead, is available on Amazon or from your local bookstore. If you haven't already listened to it, check out last week's episode of the Modern Mexico podcast, where we speak to Mexico historian Ben Smith about his new book, The Dope, The Real History of the Mexican Drug Trade. The next episode of the Modern Mexico podcast is coming soon. Until then, hasta luego, amigos.